Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the XL podcast. This is all about leadership, sharing journeys. I think anybody out there who has experience of entrepreneurs, startup founders, change makers, leaders will know the journey is never a straight line. Often, as in the classic heroic narrative, it's two steps back, three steps forward, but it never is straight. There are many hurdles to overcome and there are many rivers to cross in that journey and that's what makes those journeys fascinating and inspiring as well we learn a lot they're not all glamorous we're going to learn today about a real journey i'll say that in the sense that i think there's going to be a lot of lessons learned for entrepreneurs or change makers out there who want to understand what it's like and you know what happens when it doesn't all go to plan as well and obviously the key takeaway is is that you're still in the game fighting so with that in mind i'm very pleased to welcome my next guest to the xl podcast john denbord john welcome to the show thank you so much graham really appreciate being on it's great to have you here now for those that don't know john there is content out there which we'll talk about obviously there's the tedx there's the netflix documentary we'll get into those in a bit you know, you do have different monikers, different titles, part entrepreneur, part clinical neuropsychologist, brain specialist. How do you describe yourself, John? Interesting question nowadays, I think. Well, first, as the, your listeners will come to know later in the talk, I probably first and foremost describe myself as a father. But after that, I generally somebody that uh, wants to give back to the community and somebody that wants to help people. Interesting, interesting that those labels have now been in a bit of a mix match nowadays, but I consider myself a helper and a father first and foremost. Hmm. It's not typically how a medical professional would have described themselves. I mean, you've come from that world, haven't you? You studied, you did your postdoctorate in... Was it spinal cord injury or clinical neuropsychology? What, what did you do your PhD in? And tell us a little bit about your medical background that got you there. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was growing up, I always liked sort of the interaction of helping humans. And I felt that the most direct way that I could do that is through when I got into undergraduate in Carroll College in, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, where I'm from, I was really attracted to psychology and sociology. So I double majored in that. And then I went on to get uh, my master's in clinical psychology, started studying neuropsychology, which is the study of the brain. And then I ended up getting my doctorate in clinical neuropsychology or clinical psychology, neuropsychology emphasis uh, at the University of Montana. And then from there, I went to uh, the Boston VA, Harvard University and Boston University School of Medicine and studied dementia and in neuropsychology and then went to postdoc at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. And that's how I ended up in Phoenix for a bit of time. Yeah, definitely a brain guy. I don't know if you've read, there's a great book out there, When Breath Becomes Air. It's by a neuropsychologist, clinical neuropsychologist called Paul Kalanithi, which is it's really fascinating. He's an American guy, um, probably a similar academic background to yourself, but he's all about... You know, when you're working with patients, we kind of forget the human touch because you become so, I mean, even if you think about the training, your training is extremely technical that we forget about that sort of human contact that we lose in the medical community as well. So to start out, set out your stall today and say that you are about helping people. Imagine a lot of people in the industry get subsumed, don't they? Not only into the the labels and the titles and the, the data. And I imagine you just probably are overloaded with imaging scans on a daily basis, as many are, that we forget about the human aspect of it. What was it like for you? Because you started out in psychology and sociology, which isn't a typical pathway, is it, in 
the medical profession. How did you find that for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it 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 definitely wasn't a typical um, profession. In some ways, I'm probably more returning to some of that now. But I I still really, as I teach psychology now, I really value the role of the community and the culture in one's individual psychology. And you're exactly right. I was really focused for a long time on solving the problem that patients had. And when you when you start looking at them as complex problems to be solved, there is a tendency to lose sort of the human aspect of that because one, you are, especially when you're running your own business, you're overloaded with clients. So you have way too many clients to really focus on the way that you want to on. So you're stressed out about that. And then they all have complex problems. And so you want to account for all those variables. And the most efficient and best way of doing that in a sense is to sort of look at them as equations and then you start really you know it, it doesn't allow you to spend the time and to get to know them as people now nevertheless i got to know a lot of my clients as people and it was really really great and that was the best part of my job but i think that some consumers of mental health and medical services feel like oh my doctor's impersonal or they're hmm. or they're cold and i don't think that i ever came across quite that way but it's maybe considered that and maybe because they have, you know, 30 other clients that day like you, and they want to get home before 7pm to have dinner with their family. So it, it can be a difficult thing. And I think what you're leading to is, you know, we can often lose ourselves, why we started these things to begin with. And um, I think the, the, you know, the real blessing in everything that I've gone through is that I've been able to really return to my roots, um, literally back where I um, grew up, teaching at a college, a uh, local community college where I grew up, and teaching introduction to psychology. So it's pretty pretty crazy to think, you know, I did my did my study. It's I guess in some way some of the most elite universities in the world, and you know had done I think for all intents and purposes pretty stellar in my career, and I kind of ended up right where I started, which is. Uh, both humbling and gratifying at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Back to your roots. I studied uh, psychology and sociology as well, and then went on to take cognitive psychology at degree level, which was actually more artificial intelligence. So I sort of went into the computational side of it. But I think the roots of that for me was the real fascination with people and you know, the whys of behavior, the really human aspect of it. And even now, sort of going back to my roots, even with podcasting, it's about the human connection. I think there's a big element of that in the medical profession as well, isn't it? That when you start out, even when you take the Hippocratic Oath and you swear to serve in in a ethical way, it's all about that human connection, isn't it? And we kind of get lost in our careers, whether it's as a medical professional or an accountant or a lawyer or an entrepreneur, we can kind of get sucked into the machine a little bit. And sometimes things have to happen to us, whether that, you know, sometimes personally, it's, it's sort of, you know, looking over the precipice, isn't it? Whether that's touching mortality or people around us that remind us and bring us back to what it was all about. And sometimes it takes those sort of, you know, the shocks out of the blue, the exogenous shocks that kind of remind us, this is why you started this journey in the first place. And I think that's kind of hopefully what we're going to touch on today, because you've had quite a remarkable journey. We haven't even gone into it yet, really. We've just set out the stall with a bit of your medical background. And let's just start there first, because I'm fascinated by what your passion has been. I watched your TEDx talk and I recommend it to all the listeners as well about disrupting dementia. Uh, it's a great talk. There's some really powerful stats out there as well for the benefit of those who don't have those stats to hand. Let's put it out there about dementia and particularly we're talking about diseases like I suppose Alzheimer's, Parkinson's maybe, or you know the sort of degenerative diseases which are really a uh, a symptom of a, a successful society where people are living longer, but they have these kind of invisible diseases. Um, in the US alone, there are estimated 6 million people have Alzheimer's and related 
dementias. And obviously that's increasing by a significant number every year. And then I guess there's around that a large number of people who have dementia in different forms, which are not properly understood. Maybe they're not even classed as dementia. People don't even know, or they're sort of early stage dementia as well. Um, it's a growing problem. Tell us why you have devoted yourself to this problem. And it seems in many ways like a rising tide, which we can't sort of turn back. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I've never heard somebody put it that way. It's, it is sort of a hallmark of a successful society in some ways. And I think that that's an interesting way of putting it and probably very accurate. So dementia is the number one problem facing our world with the exception of probably climate change. So if you think about the just the general overall aspects, variables at play with dementia, as you accurately said, you have people that are living much, much longer across the world. In developing nations, as well as so-called first world countries, people are increasing life expectancy dramatically right now. And we all kind of have a sense of why that is, um, you know, better health care, better nutrition, people are dying less from diseases, etc. And so this is really pronounced in developing nations that have very high populations. So an example of that would be India or China, countries that have, you know, extremely make up for significant proportions of the world's population. So you have people that are living longer. So it is the mark of a successful society. And in particular, people that are living longer in developing nations where life expectancy was shorter. So in a lot of ways, that's good. People should, you know, people should be living longer, but it brings out this problem, this increased challenge of what do we do when those people in developing nations now are now uh, living long enough to, to get a what I would term a more natural progression into dementia. So the brain is really designed to live, and this is all individually variant, and there's a bunch of different factors. But generally, you can say that the brain is sort of designed to exist or to live to about the age of 85 or 90, probably 90 in some Mediterranean cultures, it's more like 90 to 95. So the brain cortex, the sort of the outer layer of the brain, you could say the brain's skin in some ways shrinks as we get older. So it starts shrinking and when we get into our late 50s. But the, the shrinking really becomes much more pronounced when we get into our late 80s and 90s. For example, my, my family, I'm fortunate we don't have dementia that runs within our or like early onset dementia, which I'll talk about later in our family. So those individuals live to have typically lived into their 90s and they haven't gotten dementia, and meaning their brain cortex, among other things, hasn't been shrinking at an accelerated rate. But other people's families, they have the genetic structure where they might experience a more earlier version of dementia. Now, this is not the kind of dementia that people think of when they look at popular media. In maybe Alzheimer's disease, there's 26 major types of dementia in which Alzheimer's is one. But this is the kind of dementia that sort of naturally progresses when the brain gets too old, as you might think about it. So this kind of dementia is not the thing that people think about typically. They think about somebody in their 60s or 70s or you know maybe early 80s getting um, what they might term as Alzheimer's, which could be Alzheimer's, could be a variety of other forms of dementia. And this would be that they're, that somebody is somewhat younger in terms of old age, so late 60s, 70s, 80s, and they're experiencing a disease where their brain is developing plaques, the neurons are developing tangles, or different what we call like a diagnostic etiology or causal mechanisms are happening. So this is really happening in somebody's brain, but uh, I think a big key to sort of understand is that those cases only reflect uh, a minority of cases in the general population. So if we look at the world's population of dementia, we would estimate it to be right now, the diagnosed cases around, around probably almost 80 million cases worldwide right now. And that number is probably half of what is actually happening. 
So this number is expected to double every 20 years. So it's expected to reach probably 100 million cases, uh, 100 to 110, maybe 120 million cases in eight years from now. So 2030, there's expected to be about 150 million cases in 2050. It's crazy statistics. And so when I would be in China and consult in China, you know, when you look at that population of given countries, what are we going to, not to sound crass, but where are these people going to live? How are we going to care for them? It's a tremendous personal, moral, ethical, and economic uh, problem. I wonder about the last part, the burden of that on society, because how, how does this compare to, say, other degenerative diseases like cancer? Because I can imagine if you're diagnosed with cancer or heart disease, that apart from probably the period where you're sort of in palliative care or you're terminally ill, uh, most people can survive and live a relatively normal life, on, and even on their own, obviously with family around them. But with something like dementia, how does that factor in? Is there a much wider economic impact or social impact for people who have these diseases? Absolutely. And I go into that a bit in the, uh, in the documentary. And then I have a book as well entitled, This is Dementia, where I'm able to expand on it a bit more. But basically, the economic impact is at least fourfold with dementia, because in dementia, you have the individual affected, you have the economic loss that they have sustained, then you have the healthcare loss, people with dementia take at least 12 times the amount of um, uh, healthcare resources than somebody without dementia. So it's a tremendous burden on healthcare systems, financially, um, doctors, infrastructure, etc. But then you, what you have a lot is the loss of, of um, economic gain from uh, caregivers. So when my grandmother developed early stage dementia, fortunately, she was at a point in which there were people around her that could help help her and they were not working. They didn't have to take off time from work and they didn't have to give up their jobs. But the economic burden um, is tremendous for those people that which many of your listeners may be one of those people, or they may know those people that have to take off time from work or have to quit their jobs to care for somebody with dementia because they cannot afford to place somebody in America, what we call an independent living, assisted living environment. Folks may know that as a retirement home. And generally in the past, it was referred to as an old folks home, hmm. but that costs a lot of money. That costs four or five $6,000 a month, US dollar, which is, um, you know, a fairly high cost most people can't afford. I was, uh, I don't know if you, if you think this is a good or very indicative of the state of that kind of care and the state of dementia, but um, the documentary by Louis Theroux, Extreme Love Dementia, I was watching that recently, where he goes to one of these assisted living homes and they've all I get, they've all got different kinds of dementia at different stages as well. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, if it's indicative of the kind of cases out there. But one thing that really struck me from this, John, and I think this is probably one of the key messages, was the impact on the families. And in some cases, there I think there was one instance of a son and a daughter who, to put it bluntly, had basically taken their mother there and then kind of disowned her because she wasn't the same person. You know, there, it was obviously, you know, heart wrenching for them, but it was the only way for them to somehow rationalize that relationship that they had with her because she didn't recognize them at all. And, you know, her personality had completely changed. And for them, it was too hard for that to go in and visit her at the home. And so it was left, I think the son went in occasionally, but the daughter just couldn't go. And she rationalized it in herself saying, this is not my mother anymore, which I imagine she's kind of thought that over. And that was kind of the way that she dealt with it cognitively. But that seemed really severe. I mean, I've dealt in my family with, my mom had uh, 
it wasn't dementia, but she had uh, uh, stage four GBM, which is a tumor in the brain that changed her personality. I suppose the impact was probably quite similar to the de degeneration of the brain, but her personality changed completely after operation. And I can imagine when you've got a degenerative disease, it's like a different person there. I don't know how indicative that is of these cases out there, but that documentary was shocking and quite heart-wrenching as well. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I'm sorry for your experience, Graham. And, you know, secondly, I don't, having witnessed this in, you know, thousands of former patients, I... I really try not to accept in extreme cases, make any value judgment because there is a point in this disease. I, that's why I, I really call this disease the most heart, the really the most heartbreaking gut wrenching disease that is out there. Be it, because it takes somebody from you before they physically die. And it really not to get too philosophical or academic about it, but it really gets at as humans, what we what it means to be human and what it means to be a a person and i don't know much about this and this is not an area of expertise for me but a lot of countries have now are wrestling with especially as the population increases you know what it means to make decisions regarding your quality of life and your length of life when somebody develops a mid to late stage dementia and i think we're going to see over the next 10 to 15 years because a big point here is that this disease has not hit us yet. The wave that has hit, that is exposed to hit, is still very much offshore. Because in the United States, the baby boomer population has just began to enter into the phase of early potential early stage dementia. This is a population size that has tripled the size of any population before or after it. And then in China, in India, in other countries, life expectancy now is really increasing. This is not going to be felt for really the next 10 years or so, but governments are now beginning to think about it on a mass scale. And the World Health Organization has begun to sort of think about it. But again, I really equate it psychologically in sociology, and I would be interested in your thoughts on this, Graham, about people's reaction to climate change. You know, we saw it 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you know, and people talked about it, they wrote books about it. And then now here we're up against it. And people, human beings, from my experience, tend to engage in reactive rather than preventive change. And so now we're sort of at that point of climate change, it seems to me that we're trying to react to something almost last minute. And we're behind the eight ball. And that's what I'm trying to do yeah. with dementia. I'm, with my book and with my with my TEDx and then with the the documentary, I'm just trying to get people to start preventative as much as possible reaction as opposed to hey now we're dealing with you know 200 million people that have diagnosed cases and probably a projected 400 to 500 million across the world. We don't have enough space. We don't have enough healthcare workers. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough jobs to deal with this. This is going to be a mass, not to, you know, not to be alarmist, but this is going to be like a mass immediate urgent problem that I hope we don't say, oh, we didn't really know about this. Well, knowing about it and like you say, acting on it is two things, aren't they? And the data often doesn't move us, just like with climate change. It's the stories that will make change that people will always think, well, it's not going to affect me. Or just like the warnings on cigarette boxes, that is not going to affect me. We tend to kind of rationalize this. But for you, it's been a mission. I was seeing, I mean, in, in the Netflix documentary, and again, we'll put it in the show notes so people can get a bit of better backgrounds to the story as well. You talk about a, a spiritual and a personal mission and you've been touched as well. Your family, your grandmother has been touched by dementia and that in a way triggered a, a, a moment of change for you internally, personally as well. Tell us about that. How did that impact you and what was the backstory there? Yeah, my grandmother, Jean Sealing, 
S-E-E-L-I-N-G. She was the impetus for everything that I did in really academically, but particularly in clinical neuropsychology and dementia. So my grandmother, to just tell a brief story, she was a woman that we would consider a strong, independent woman, particularly in her day. So she grew up in the 19, you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And she was the first woman of her, of her family, one of the first women of her generation to go to college. And she went to college and she was one of two women there. And she graduated and did a lot of really cool, innovative, independent things in college. And she was a woman that really was influential in raising me. And my mother used to say she liked to call a spade a spade. So she was fairly direct in her praise, but also in her in the things that she did not like. And I really, her and my mother were just paramount in raising me. And when I went, so I had a very, very special relationship with her. And when I went off to, I did my undergrad locally at the school that she went to actually. And then when I went off to Colorado, it was very difficult leaving her. And in the 13 years or 11 or 12 years that I went to graduate school, I would come home, you know, once a, once a, you know, a semester or once a year, and I would see her. And I just saw her in those snapshots gradually, gradually getting older, but also at the tail end, losing her cognitive facilities slowly. And I tried to make people in my family, my extended family, that were her caregivers and doing an awesome job, very aware of this. Um, but they, they said, you know, God bless them. Um, you know, they're not at fault. I'm not upset um, at them. They said, you know, this is just old age, which is really emblematic of the conversations that, that all of us have throughout the world. Uh, is this wondering, is this old age or is this something more? And it turned out to be something more for her. And I remember the last conversation that I had with her, um, I said, hey, grandma, it was very clear to me at that point that she was entering into dementia and I hadn't quite finished graduate school at that time. And I said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going back to school. I won't see you for a while. And I remember putting my hand on the doorknob to leave her. And she said, you know, I'll see you tomorrow, honey. And um, I, it was probably in retrospect, sort of my resignation that my family, despite me, you know, studying in this area tremendously and trying to have various, you know, direct conversations with my family members who were caregivers, we succumbed to the same thing that the overwhelming majority of families across the world succumb to is, you know, we don't know if this is dementia versus old age. We don't know who to take her to. And if it, even if it is, what can we do about it? And I found that I relate that story to people in almost every talk I do, not to suggest that my situation was unique at all, to actually suggest the opposite. My situation was totally non-unique, was incredibly ubiquitous. Uh, here I was, you know, maybe winning awards and studying at some of uh, the so-called most prestigious universities in this particular area. I was an expert. And yet I could not, my family did not handle the situation any differently or better than any other person's family in this area. And I think when I talk to people throughout the world, I, um, you know, I see that the, the same thing in their story. They're, they feel helpless because they don't have the resources and the knowledge to deal with this disorder. So I did, at that point, I dedicated my life personally and professionally, and I still have that dedication despite everything that's happened to to helping people in any way I can get the message out regarding dementia and the small things, um, but important things we can do to help mitigate the, the disease. Yeah, it must have been really frustrating, especially the context of your training as well, that you should have had all the answers. Then there you were facing what everybody else was facing. That frustration obviously became an energy in you. And that then transformed into a, an entrepreneurial journey later on. How did that all pan out? What was the driver there? And tell us about the sort of the process from going from being a, a medical professional to somebody starting their own business as well, because that's an un, 
familiar journey for a lot of people. Often people st stick to the lane, right? You know, if you're a clinical neuropsychologist, you, stay, you don't start a, a business because, you know, you're not necessarily a risk taker. So what happened there? Yeah, I think in, re in retrospect, the issue, you know, I have always been a bit of a, I don't know if you would call it a risk taker. I just don't really see the risk. You know, like I see the objective and I don't really, I get myopic about the objective and I just don't even, I probably am uh, one step beyond a, a risk taker, which is I don't see a risk. I knew that had a couple of life experiences, which the primary one being my grandmother's death, um, which happened when I was in Southern California. I was working with a life coach at that time. And it just, uh, you know, spiritually coincided. And I said, this is, you know, this is what God, great spirit, the world, the universe wants me to do with my life. And I had really not been spiritually focused prior to that. So I thought, okay, in, no matter if I make, you know, if I'm destitute or if I'm rich, I'm, this is what I'm going to do, you know, despite any obstacle. And so I just worked to that end. And, you know, very long story short, was able to Medicare and any other healthcare systems were not approving any sort of therapies for people with early stage dementia. So when you are first diagnosed with dementia, typically it's too late. But if you get a very early diagnosis, there are things that you can do to help mitigate the intensity of the disease. You can't reverse it. You can't change it. You can't cure it. But there are things that you can do. One of those things is cognitive exercise and physical exercise and nutrition and other things. And so I basically did enough research and worked over a period of years to get Medicare, which is our big government system for older people, healthcare system, to pay for these services for early stage dementia for individuals that did not have a diagnosis of dementia. Now, they... At that point, for, you know, for that entire time, they had refused to pay. They explicitly said in their protocol, we do not pay for any services with anybody with the diagnosis of dementia. And we, we do not pay for services that for preventative services. So, you know, most health insurance does not pay for preventative health care in general. So I was able through research and through just basically stubbornness um, over a three to four year period of time, get got Medicare to pay for these services. So I started having people in my clinic, in my small clinic, start to utilize these services. And as they utilize these services, then, you know, it just grew and grew and grew to the point that we had over, we went from one person in an office to almost a hundred employees across the southwestern United States, across the United States, seeing over tens of thousands of clients in this area and including an online product. So um, I was, you know, never thinking about it as a business. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. In some ways, I still don't. I just see a problem and I'm just, I'm a simpleton, I guess. Um, I see a problem and I just, I'm like, I'm going to find a way of solving the problem no matter what the label is or the category or what I do. And I saw the business, I still see the business as a way of solving the problem. And my, that probably made me a, not an awesome business owner because I was never focused on you know, returns or profits. I was always thinking, how can we use any profit that we have to reinvest in developing more programs for, to help treat the need. So I always thought of the business and I still do as a clinician first and a, you know, sort of a business owner second. And, uh, if, you know, as, as your listeners know, and you know, it really takes a mix of both of that. Mm -hmm. It's the classic innovator, isn't it? The innovator who's passionate about what they do and will create something that solves a problem because they've seen a problem and they understand it as well as anybody else. And they can find a solution for it. And it just so happens they can't do that within traditional parameters. So they have to then create something and scale that something to solve the problem rather than pursue the dream of building a business. It just happens to be this is the best way we can solve this problem at scale when you have 10,000 clients, you know, that you can't do that as an individual clinician. You can't 
physically do it. You have to have that kind of leverage. So that's the classic innovator. But like you mentioned, there are weaknesses that come with that as well. That the classic innovator doesn't think about things like operations or PL balance sheets. That's not their first port of call. Often they need people who can cover those blind spots as well. But that is often the pure, you know, the passion for innovation as well. What was it like for you when you got to that point where you had 100 employees and 10,000 plus minus clients, patients, when you woke up that morning and you realized, wow, this has really grown? At what point well, did you sort of think, this is what I got into at the beginning, this is what I wanted to do? Was it kind of taking over the the pure love of that human connection with people or is it kind of having its own entity? Yeah, I think that's well said. I think it I think in retrospect, of course it was almost very very difficult to see because you know when you're working 70 80 hours a week, you just can't see anything else. Anything else. But yeah, it was taking over what I what I loved. And my mother who sort of was the first she was she was like employee number 2 um next to me in the in the company, my grandmother's daughter who I have a very special relationship with. She started seeing that in me. I just started losing the passion and I started just becoming more grumpy and kind of more. Um, I just started hanging out with investors and doing investor pitches all over the place. And that that's fun, but you just be, you change, right? You become very financially driven. And there was just, I mean, for lack of a better term, a lot more pressure, a lot less client contact, uh, a lot more travel. And yes, I lost that part of myself, which I really loved. And probably for better or for worse, I came to be a fairly good CEO over mm. a three or four year period of time. So I wasn't, I wasn't bad enough where the investors and the other people were like, hey, we need another CEO to come in. They were like, you're pretty good, actually. We'd like you to stay. And so I, I, you know, I was kind of just good enough to stay on. But in retrospect, I should have been more definitive with myself and others and saying, hey, this is what I want to do. What I was trying to do is get to this next big level of getting into a full series A. And once we got our full series A, which we were very, very close at getting, then I was going to move to a chief medical officer role. And that would have been perfect for me. Yeah. And we were chatted about this before. You had commitments. You had people promising to wire money, the checks written, et cetera, timesheets signed. And for startup founders, that becomes an obsession, doesn't it? That becomes your life, chasing, presenting, pitching, you know, that the hustle. And yeah, I can imagine when you started out because of that love, even like thinking back to the psychology, sociology of people, that there's that kind of desperation, that real yearning to get back home, isn't there? That, okay, I've done, I want to do this series A and then I can kind of like hire somebody, get a good CEO in who can, you know, take this to the next level and I can really focus on what I want to focus on. But then things changed, right? The trajectory of your business changed a little bit. Tell us about what happened next. Because this is kind of, I mean, there's, there's sort of two more chapters to go through. There's the what happened next part and then kind of like the return, which is where you are now, which is kind of like almost like a rebirth in many sense. But this next chapter is probably the hardest part for you. You know, when things changed in your business and things got a little bit uglier, you know, you kind of lost focus a little bit of that pure innovation and the love of human connection that you started out with. What's the next chapter about? What can you share with us and how would you, I know we don't have a lot of time, but how would you describe what happened next? Yeah, so uh, this is actually in retrospect because you kind of get siloed when you're in your own business growing it. I mean, we were with, we were at some really great accelerators, Alchemist Accelerator and in other and you know other incubators that were great so we were hanging out with other entrepreneurs but we were growing extremely rapidly more rapidly than a lot of other companies and that's in our cohort so we were really focused on just day-to-day -day business and so we got a term sheet for nine million dollars from a private equity firm in new york city and we thought we were you know that was it we were going to get nine million we were going to you know we had our contracts written we had our contracts signed we were going to be we're, we were going to fulfill our roles and this was not just me this was many other people in our business 
And they pulled the term sheet the night before they were supposed to wire the money. And this is sounds crazy, but it is not very uncommon, hmm. actually. Oh, they were true. like, yeah. they were dating, you know, 20 to 30 people and doing the same thing for them. And they pulled it, you know, they pulled it, they pulled the money on 29 of the 30. So nothing that you, you hear this, but it's really true in business in, and in life, you know, until the checks clears, you don't have the money. And we had told our families, our friends, and we were totally burnt out at that time. I know I was. And I had a baby on the way, actually. We then were trying to hyper grow to hit these metrics for a period of a year and a half. And when we didn't get the money, we were underwatered financially. And we had all these responsibilities and we did not know where to go. So we essentially, long story short, went to a, a sort of loan shark and got money from this individual. And he ended up initiating a hostile takeover of the business. And again, long story short, torpedoed the business. And in some ways, essentially torpedoed my life for the last couple of years. Hmm. Yeah, I know. It's a terrible situation, but it's one of those things where it's never one event, is it? It's almost like an escalation that happens and you're almost being propelled along this trajectory, aren't you? Like the fact that, you know, you probably wouldn't have made that decision to go to a loan shark at any other time, but the fact that it came off the back of just getting this close to the money being wired and then pulling the plug on you, that that sort of changes your mindset on everything, doesn't it? And there's this, this constant ex escalation that you went through this process and then you, wrong place, wrong time, wrong person, you know, you got caught up in events and then everything just got pulled from you. That must have been tough. And especially you had a child right about that time as well. Everything kind of, for you, it must have been accelerating all at different speeds. Imagine a lot of different questions in your head. What was the kind of saving or the touchstone and all of that that got you through it? Because that must have been an extremely low point. And I imagine as well, and for somebody who comes from your background in the medical profession as well, to experience that kind of level of failure must have been doubly hard. Because I imagine, you know, that profession is built around avoiding failure and mitigating risk. So when it hits you that hard, then it must be not just hard for you, but you're hard for you amongst your peers as well. What got you through that? Yeah, I, I can really relate to everything that you're saying. You know, I'm still getting through it. It's been four years now, three and a half years, four years. I mean, the main thing, honestly, is my son. Like when all everything was crumbling around me, I just knew that, hey, I had this living being that I was entirely responsible for and he was helpless without me and that I, if I couldn't do anything right, I could be a good dad. And, and it's funny how the world works because I know I wouldn't have been as good a dad as I am now near as good a dad if the company would have been successful. I would have been very different than what I am now. Um, That's profound John, to say that. Yeah. I basically been a stay at home dad sort of for the last couple of years. And it's been really amazing. And I know that God has put this in my life for a reason. And that this has been the reason uh, to be a good husband, to be a, to show up for my to show up for my wife, to show up for my son, to try to be the best person I can. But have I been in all intents and purposes a failure to my profession and the, and, you know, the startup community? Absolutely. Like, uh, you know, I've had to spend the last, you know, three years talking to investors in our company, to talking to lawyers every day, to trying to figure out this, this crazy legal mess that, that this has all put a, us in. It's been a, it's hard objectively not to think of yourself as a failure when you're used to winning so much. But we were doing crazy things, Graham. We were going to our bank accounts and taking out cash every day to pay the employees to keep them on because these are people that we made commitments to. And this was not just a business where we we're putting together widgets. This is a business where we were helping people. And these people meant a lot to us, the employees. So if anything else, we shouldn't have done that, but we, we hemorrhaged all our personal finances to try to make the employees whole for as long as we could. 
And then when it was apparent that we had no more money, then we had to let them go. But I think that's the hardest thing is being, you know, when you build an emotionally based business and everybody's attached to their business, but ours particularly, when it had a mission that I believed a mission from God, and I still do, like we were not about to make a business call, the right business call. We were, we were about to leverage any amount of money that we could get our hands on to keep the clients that we had served because what we were going to, what we were going to tell them, Hey, you know, your loved one has dementia and you've been taking them here for the last six years. And this has been your only time that you've had a loan for yourself all week. And now we're going to say, Oh no, we have to close up shop because just some psychopath, you know, engaged in a hostile takeover or a business. They really don't care about that. They want, they want the service. And, you know, so we made some very, very poor business decisions for the sake of our customers. And um, that has led to us be, you know, us not having any money, but Hey, that's, I'm, I'm glad that we made the decisions that we did in retrospect, because I felt like I tried to do things the right way. And I, at least I can look at myself in the mirror and live with myself this way. Yeah. I'm putting, putting that together. I think it's part of the trying to interpret events as well, because it's only with a bit of hindsight that you can really make sense of it all and see it as it is. I mean, you're not a failure, John. I think that's really important to realize you failed. Yes, but you're not a failure. There's a big difference. And I think that's really important that yes, you made some bad business decisions and you were unlucky because in other instances when the stars are aligned differently, those poor business decisions may have been forgiven by being in the right place at the right time. So in that respect, that's just unlucky. And, you know, that shouldn't detract from your mission that, you know, if you really believe that's a mission, then this is just a setback, you know, and maybe it was, you know, you pushed too hard in one direction. And, you know, you got your fingers burned doing it. And that was kind of the universe telling you, John, that's not the right way of doing it. You've got to go down a different pathway. Because, you know, maybe with your training and your skills and the tools that you have, that there's another way of applying all that talent. But maybe it's not through the, the vehicle that you've tried in the past. And I think that's really important because there's many ways of doing it. And to realize that, you know, that the pathway that you chose, there's a lot of learnings there, but that isn't the only way. You know, that wasn't, I know it was probably the most attractive and the media tends to hype up being the startup founder and look how glamorous it is and look how much money we can raise and look how fast we can scale. But maybe there's another way. And I'm sure there is a smart guy like you, you'll find it. And I think you're pushing in that direction slowly gathering yourself together as well. So I think it's really important not to think of yourself as a failure, John. That's key here. You know, you failed. I mean, you look at people like, I know Elon Musk is probably, you know, he's a bit of a celebrity when it comes to startup founders. But, you know, just the other day, looking at all his failures, you know, and just gargantuan list of failures, you know, but he, he's not a failure, right? I mean, all, like being ousted from PayPal, you know, which he started and, you know, losing money and almost going bust. And then all the experiments that he ran, even with SpaceX, with, you know, all the rockets that were lost and the money that he had almost lost all the money on Tesla to fund, you know, his other enterprises, all these kind of things. That's just natural. I think that we don't tend to talk about those failures because they don't kind of make sense in the bigger picture. And we just like to see the successes and the survivor bias as well. So, you know, if there's one thing to take away from your story, I mean, it's inspiring. And I'm, I'm really hoping that this is just kind of end of a chapter. You know, you're a young guy. There's, there's plenty more chapters left in you here, John. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's, uh, you know, my son is turning three this weekend. Uh, and so <laughs> it's, uh, Happy birthday. it's, yeah, yeah. It's amazing to think about that. And I, I really am glad that I, that I, that I sort of, 
that I am not a failure, but my startup failed in that way because I was able to succeed as a father. And I'm not sure that I could have done that. And uh, now that he's in daycare full time, I'm getting myself back into it and and looking for all possibilities and have learned a lot in this process. So I can say I'm extremely grateful for the process and the people I met in it and um, for the lessons that I've learned. And I, I, I don't think for one instance that this wasn't meant to be this way. So um, just grateful, grateful for everything, to be honest. Inspiring. What a wonderful story as well. I know there's a lot of darkness to the story, but that is what makes the, the light so much more, you know, inspiring as well, that you've got to go through literally the valley of death to find it. And maybe you just kind of, you know, it's not the complete story yet. You know, you're just kind of at that stage where you've had to go through that darkness. And now it's kind of like finding the light. And I think that's quite exciting as well, because, you know, you're not sounding like you're giving up. And what a, what a story for your son to grow up to as well. You know, this is what daddy did. So, I mean, that, for him, that will be just inspiring, you know, if he learns that this is what he did and he went through all this when I was just being born. And now I look at him now, you know, that's inspiring. That would probably be the biggest legacy. Those kind of stories that you leave with people like that, that will impact them in many ways. So John, thanks so much today for coming on and sharing your story. It's really inspiring and hopefully touched a nerve or touched a raw sentiment with some of the listeners as well. Where, where can people find out more about you? Where's the best place if people do want to contact you? How would you best entertain them? Yeah, I have a website, uh, johndenboer.com. And then uh, we have a website, This Is Dementia. So this is dementia.com. It has my book. It has the, the documentary. Documentary, the full documentary is available on YouTube and Netflix and other mediums. And you can reach out to me at any time. I am one of those people that always calls people back and always messages people back. And I love communication. If there's anything that I can do for people in this space, I'm super happy to help and entrepreneurial um, space as well. John Denbor, everybody. John, thanks so much today. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it very much. Have a great day. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.